You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and my good friend, Sarah Raven. Today, I'm on my own interviewing one of the UK's most prestigious and wonderful florists, Shane Colony, who you might remember from doing the wedding flowers for Prince William and Kate Middleton. But Shane has also got a great love of constant spry and also, most importantly, flying the flag of not using oasis in event floristry or any floristry at all shane is completely committed like myself and sarah to using flowers where they belong in water once they're cut so we're going to be talking about all that today what you may know about shane is he holds the royal warrant of appointment with the prince of wales and he's also the author of four books has an incredible business in North Kensington, which I had the privilege of visiting to see a whole Aladdin's cave of vases and jewel-like glasses from where he sends out across the country and indeed the world at times, his incredible flair for flowers and arranging flowers, but not making flowers look rigid and en masse. Shane is actually an incredible poet of flowers, making them look like they would look like in the garden. So even though he is a very much a florist who goes to the market to buy his flowers he is able to make them look like they're from the garden and often within the correct season and most of all Shane is flying the flag of floristry and sustainability by not using the demon that is oasis so welcome Shane this morning thank you so i'm gonna get you to do the eulogy at my funeral after that makes me sound <laughs> very much better than i probably am thank you nonsense you're incredible mm. <laughs> so what um i suppose i should start asking you you've been doing this according to your website at least for 25 years is that old or you've been doing yeah, it longer 1989 my business started so that's 30 wow yeah more than older than you yeah, yeah almost yeah not much older than me but yeah when you first stepped into the, the floristry world, do you remember the first paid thing that you did? Well, I worked as a freelancer helping a very famous florist of his day called Michael Goulding and his partner, Elizabeth mm. Baker. And, and so the very first thing I remember doing with them was the opening of the new Lloyd's building. But really, I was carrying buckets. Yeah. I, was, I was carrying buckets and mopping up and sweeping up. I wasn't allowed to touch flowers. So that's the first thing I remember being paid to do that involved flowers. A porter, flower porter. Basically, age 22, maybe. Yeah. Wow. And then, so you, you started off as their porter. Yes. And <laughs> when did you actually start to touch the flowers then? Well, not ever with them. I probably, because I was, I had finished university and I was working as a research psychologist for one year and their flowers were my sort of lifeline to a life that I thought I would prefer. And so I used to help them. And I suppose they didn't really ever let me arrange flowers. I, I was allowed to take flowers home afterwards and I would play with them at home. But then mm. I got a job with Pulbrook and Gould. And that's when I first sort of started officially touching flowers. And I'm glad you mentioned the word weekend, because as, as a florist, do you get many weekends off? Not not as many as I would like, it has to be said. No, because no. I'd imagine your peak 
time is weddings at weekends. Well, is we, it? It's very funny. We don't do as many weddings as some people. I think several reasons for that, but we don't. And so, yeah, I mean, we don't work as many weekends as some flower companies. Uh, that's for sure. But still too many to be happy about. <laughs> and if you have to get up at four on, <laughs> on a Monday morning, a weekend is a bit different. It's sort of, you know, mm. it is Sundays are, are, are not what Sundays used to be like. I can't remember what they used to be no. like, but they aren't like that. Yeah. So weekends, <laughs> weekends, I'm a bit like Maggie Smith. What is a weekend? Yeah. For a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. mean, I, I imagine you, Shane, because what I, what I find so incredible about you is you, you don't have a cut flower farm. And I've, I've seen your garden in the dark because I have been to dinner with you. I've not seen your garden, but I know you haven't got a cutting garden. You're, you're sourcing these beautiful, gorgeous flowers with beautiful bendy stems that look like you've just been out and, you know, basically clipped a beautiful bower off a hedgerow. You must spend a lot of time finding suppliers that you can trust professionally to supply with all this gorgeousness. Is that what you spend a lot of your time doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our time is sourcing and finding finding growers and foragers who you can forge a relationship with so you don't – I mean, I don't like to – I use the word design. Some people don't think flowers are designed, but I don't like to design with too much of a fixed palette in advance. I love it if I can phone someone like you and say, Arthur, it has to look all jewel-like and – what have you got? And you might say, I've got fantastic dahlias, but I've seen these wonderful berries as I cycled up the road on, on Instagram. And I could cut you a few bars of that. And, and that's what I like. That takes a really good supplier and a really good client because you have to someone who trusts you. And then you have to trust your grower. Mm. So I, I, I enjoy that side yes. of it. I enjoy, the, I enjoy the opening of the van doors and seeing what I've got. That's very exciting. It's mm. like going to a good farmer's market. Yeah. I mean, I've I've watched you arrange flowers now a few times, and the reason I use the word poet is because you are one of the most relaxed people I've seen demonstrate flowers. You you don't get them all out first and go right. That's my primary foliage. That's my tertiary foliage. It is very much a relaxed orchestra. Uh, you know, you're kind of ballet with your flowers as you're putting them in. I notice you always have your vases prepared as your props. Um, you know, they're, they're, that's, that's the biggest thing that I watch you take thought in. But then you just have your your casting of flowers in buckets and foliage all around you. And you seem to just have that amazing talent of being able to play with whatever colour and form is in front of you. And you're able to make it work. That's very kind. I think a very, I, mean, I really enjoy giving demonstrations, stroke talks, mm. because you aren't controlled by a client or an event or anything. So I can really, if you call it poetry, that's really kind and flattering, but it feels like, it feels like really being creative. So I, I quite like the idea that yeah. there's some spontaneity. And also, you know, I mean, let's mm -hmm. face it, the people I'm teaching are not often professional flower people. They're, they're mostly people who do flowers at home and who want to improve that. So what you want to encourage them to do is to, like a good cook, to go to a shop or go into the vegetable garden or go into the garden and be inspired. I think, I think that's, if that is the single thing that I could teach, I would be very happy for people to be inspired by what they see. I, I love to do that in the demonstration to sort of, I mean, I've thought about it a bit, I suppose, but it's quite nice to feel that there's spontaneity. Yeah. 
I mean, I think you're certainly winning on the in terms of inspiring people. I mean, your Instagram is a constant, gorgeous smorgasbord of of flowers in water in the most gorgeous stately rooms. But also it goes from stately room to just bedroom, you know, bedroom side table, doesn't it? That's the most joyful thing, I think, about having flowers in just vases of water. It's a cast and a, a way of arranging that's completely transformable from, you know, state dinner to, to the home, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you 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 are able to not make it too fussy that people feel like, oh, I can't do that. That's what I think is really important. I mean, Sarah does that. You do that as well. The idea that you can cook a beautiful meal and you can grow these vegetables mm. and you can grow these incredible containers of flowers. And I think it's true. You can. But what you want to encourage people to do then is to do it their way, not that they all produce mini Arthur Parkinson's or mini Sarah Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that's mm. the bit that sometimes doesn't happen, that doesn't translate. You know, you end up that people copy, which is good at the beginning, I suppose. But, you, you know, yeah, you really want them to, to find their own way. And, you know, putting flowers in water is really all I do. It's letting them be the stars. Again, like good food. You want the ingredients to be the stars, not not how clever the chef was at, at being able to turn them into a souffle. <laughs> it's a wonderful way of turning it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I mean, well, let's touch on the, the water subject, because this is a oh, yeah. flag that you've been flying before it became in vogue, really. It's a bit like saying you shouldn't be eating battery eggs. You were exposing your own industry, the, the devil in the heart of it, which is the thing called Oasis, which are those, for those of you that might not know, the green and blue blocks, which are brick-like, which traditionally were used in church flowers all the time and also uh, event flowers. Did you start off using Oasis when you first started out? Well, not really, because I started off at a company called Pulbrook and Gould, and they didn't mm. use floral foam. They used chicken wire because they were sort of direct descendants yes. of Constance Spry, and they used to always say, floral foam is common. They were a very upmarket company. Yes. So I had this very good. lovely idea that it was common, not that it was dangerous or it was... I mean, we didn't really talk about the environment in those days, certainly not in the flower world. No. So I, when I left Pulbrook and Gould, started my own company, I, did, I used chicken wire. But then freelancers would come along and they'd say, oh, you should use floral foam. It's so much easier, you know, and things are easier to transport. So I did. Yes, I did use it. And it was actually going to America to give talks probably the early noughties and in the the west coast especially in san francisco they were completely talking about both sustainability and local foraged flowers as they called them even if they were grown in a garden they still called them foraged and floral foam and i thought this is absolutely awful you know mm. that so i started not wanting to use it and using it less and less and i haven't used it we haven't had it in our business since 2012 so fantastic 10 years next year and not once have we thought we can't do that and that's what i would encourage people to think i mean i've been called judgmental i've been called arrogant i've been called lots of things i've been called someone said you don't design you just put flowers in water you don't deserve the name of a designer very happy to take that label i would love to be thought of just putting flowers in water <laughs> Because I don't use foam. Bravo. But I think I think there is a change. There is definitely a sea change. People are, are aware. I mean, when, when Blue Planet 2 was released and you had David Attenborough narrating this incredible footage of the plankton 
yes. eating what looked like to be algae, and then he he, he said this this is not algae; it's floral foam turning yeah. into microplastics, which <gasps> look like algae. Yeah, I do think that that must have resonated. I mean, I don't think anybody who was a flower ranger who was using Oasis would have watched that and then not had a a second look as to what they were doing. And of course, the thing is, it's all about the quickness of Oasis, isn't it? And the problem is, by the church door, that drain, which everything's just quickly tipped into, all that stuff's going into the drain and then into our water systems. Absolutely. And there's a wonderful Instagram account, isn't there, called No Floor Foam, and they do these brilliant, very simple photos showing how awful and rubbish floor foam is. They compare a stem in a vase of water and a stem in a block of oasis. Yeah. And then they say, well, actually, after a week, the one that's still alive is the one that's in the glass of water. Yeah. And the one in the oasis has has died because the oasis actually hasn't held that water. But there is an extraordinary convenience about it. And if you, I mean, I I do really emphasize if you were a high street florist in the north of England, struggling, struggling to Mm. make a living, to do an order in a little plastic dish with a block of foam and flowers stuck into it is actually a very much easier way to earn money than finding a watertight container, filling it with chicken wire, arranging Mm. flowers, or using a bigger vase that you actually, you know, don't need chicken wire for. I do really see the problem, but it's too yeah. expensive to the plant. I think it's gone past the stage of being convenient. It's a just, d- it's debate. costing, yeah, it's costing too much to the planet. Yeah. So I just yeah. can't and, see how we can of- condone it. And, and also mm. the yeah. companies that produce floral foam are massive multinational companies. Yes. If people stop buying it, they would find a really good, biodegradable, preferably compostable alternative. That, that's the only way. You, you only can control things with your purse. That's the only way. If people stop buying battery hens eggs, battery hens would be not used very much more. We all can speak. So for anyone listening who, after, after us both getting on our soapboxes, if anyone's listening who's still thinking, yeah, but I've got to do an event in two weeks time and I feel the only way I can pull it off is by using Oasis. What would be your top thing to invest in that, which would mean you wouldn't have to use Oasis. Is it a certain vase? Is there a certain chicken wire that you'd recommend? What, what are the things that can replace Oasis in professional floristry? To be honest, if somebody was panicking about something in two weeks time, I would almost say use your floral foam and make it the last time you do it. And Okay, two, yeah. two weeks is a bit soon to get through your panic. I would love mm. everybody to say I'm not going to ever use it again. But equally, it's quite hard sometimes. You, you almost need to develop your own technique. Some people use moss, but is moss sustainable? Some people use – what we personally do is poles, two, two by two wood, whatever height we want, set in concrete, wrapped with chicken wire, and then we use the, the wonderful, also produced by Oasis Smithers, the, the plastic – Flute tubes, I think they're called grave tubes, believe it or not, because you can stick them on a grave and put flowers <laughs> in them. We use those, yes. and we use tough foliage that doesn't need to be in water. We use a lot of plants. You know, sometimes you look, why is there this obsession with producing an archway or a flower wall when you could have beautiful shrubs, mm. which you can then plant in your garden, or if you yeah. don't have a garden, give to a charity like like the Westfield Trust, we give loads to, who beautify the you know the inner city of London. There's always an alternative. And I think you get more creative if you stop being mm. the Instagram slave and, and producing things that you've seen. I really, I really think we need to get past that. 
we really, do you know, when I first started doing Flowers, Arthur, there was no social media. The only way we saw other people's mm. work was via a book. So if somebody brought out a book, you bought it. It was really exciting, but we couldn't see other people's work. You only saw your own work. And that yeah. wasn't a bad thing, maybe. We need to get back to thinking like that. No, I, I agree. And I'm guessing some of the first books that you would have had would have been by your heroine, Constance Spry. Was that was that right? Well, yeah. I mean, she was long dead before I was buying her books. I used to buy her books at, at the Chelsea Flower Show. They had a secondhand book stand. And the, the, in those days, the Constance Spry ones were, you know, in a box in the corner. They weren't even on the shelves. And they were two or three quid each. Wow. Nobody wanted them. She was Gosh. completely not in fashion. And I used to buy her books. I've got all of her books, at least one copy of each. She did 13. Yeah, hers were brilliant. Ken Turner's books, Pulbrook and Gould's books. Then amazing European people like Daniel Ost and Tay Anderson. Mm. And, you know, there were an extraordinary... Tay Anderson was an amazing florist. He's still going, but very, very low key now. And the things that he was doing in the 90s were amazing to me because they were so so connected with nature. They weren't the big walls and domes of flowers that, that other people were beginning to do. So, yeah. No. But, and, and it was all through books. Yeah. And somehow sitting and looking mm. at a book is more inspirational than, than the immediacy of, of social media, I think. Totally agree. I mean, it's interesting. The Constant Spry books, we've got one, and there aren't photos. They're drawings of her arrangements, which make it even more intimate. In a and way. when there are photographs, they're in black and white. Nearly all of them, all of her books yes. are black and white. Yeah. Uh, and it's her words. You read her words and it, it fires your imagination, you know, back to that inspiration thing. And she talks about mixing orange with red to make it look more red. And you think, God, that's amazing. That's so brilliant. <laughs> and it's that sort of thing. But nowadays, you would see a photograph and it would say, I put orange with the red. And everyone would want to buy that exact orange flower. You know, is it Mombrisha? Is it an orange dahlia? And I think it's much better to go out and look for yourself and see something, I don't know, a plant, a selenium plant, which has orange. And you think, oh, wow, I could put that with my red amaryllis and that'll really bring it to life. And then yeah. it's, it's yours rather than somebody else's. It's your idea. So I recommend Constant Spry books yeah. to anybody out there. <laughs> and you bought Constant Spry very much to the Instagram world because you did an, a brilliant exhibition, didn't you, at the Garden Museum this, this year? Um, with Robin, Robin Lucas. I enjoyed it hugely, but it was, you know, the culmination yeah. of about four years' work and, well, a, a, lifetime, a lifetime of interest yeah. and probably four years' work. Yes. And then Wood Attack, mm. was, it was postponed because of COVID. It was postponed, the date was postponed four times before we finally opened in May. So it was quite a, it was quite a, quite a journey, quite a journey. So was that completely, were you, were you the force behind that happening or was it the Garden Museum who approached you? How did it, how did it evolve? I gave a talk on Constance Spry four or five years ago and Christopher Woodward, who is the director of the Garden Museum, said it would be lovely to do an exhibition on Constance Spry. And I wasn't sure if he meant with me or if he was just talking, you know, vaguely he would, he would think of curating, asking a, a sort of known curator. But then about a year later, we were having dinner and I said, you know, when you said that, what did you think? He said, oh, no, I meant you. So, you know, that was it. I was, he couldn't get rid of me then. I was, I was totally, <laughs> totally on for it because I really felt people needed to know more about, more about her. And it, that was, yeah, it was, I mean, what an opportunity. It's amazing yeah. what life throws at you yeah. if you hang around long enough. 
That was extraordinary. <laughs> a real um, and one thing when I when I last watched you demonstrate your flowers, you you I've noticed you love to use aspects from the vegetable garden and things that are quite decay. So I remember you'd got this amazing big courgette leaf covered in mildew, <laughs> which to be honest, I think if it was me or Sarah, that would have ended up we'd have gone all oh, don't want him. But you you made it the most gorgeous like skirt to this bowl of of pumpkins and clematis seed heads it was gorgeous and that was something that constance often did wasn't often, it often yeah and and well that was all, obviously i want to say in case everyone thinks i have mildew in spring that was in autumn that was just a few weeks ago really oh, yeah <laughs> when my my courgettes had definitely got mildew so that i mean that's what a real artist would do they would look at the colors of paints, they would look at the medium, they would look at the, the, the canvas they were using, and, and they try to be stimulated to try something different. And that's, you know, that's, to me, I don't want to use 5,000 Grand Prix red roses. That's not exciting. Anyone can do that. I want, the, I want to take that moldy courgette leaf and try to make it beautiful. It's like the ugly duckling, yes. isn't it? Yes, and it was the star of the show by <laughs> the, the ugly end. duckling. And you turn it into the swan by putting it in your, there you go. your arrangements. I feel a book coming do. on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think, obviously, still life doesn't always have to involve any water at all, does it? Do you like to use, you know, vegetables that are in season more and more, so pumpkins and gourds and pomegranates? And do you feel people have an increasing appetite for that kind of thing? Or do when you're when you've got clients, do they go, oh, no, that's a little bit too out there, Shane? Well, it, you have to gauge your client and the occasion. Yeah. You know, I think if it was a mm. wedding, and also the season, you know, vegetables, yes. I think, are very much an autumn thing. And I think fruit is very much a summer stroke autumn thing. I don't often think vegetables or fruit have much to say in spring. Mm. Not often. But equally, you know, what could be nicer at Christmas than a great big bowl of satsumas with, you know, with yeah. dark green leaves? It's that sort of... And I would happily do that for clients. And it might mm. be you, you do it with, with bowls of white hyacinths and the oranges in between all along a table. And that would, you know, to me, that would be completely as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than big bowls of out-of-season flowers. Still life doesn't, you're quite right. And Constance made that as well, that it wasn't just the flowers. You know, it's the whole, the whole concept, the whole, that's why I've got a warehouse full of crap. It's the it's the candlesticks, the bowls. I want to talk about this warehouse. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it doesn't look like a warehouse full of crap. I assure you, anyone who's listening, Shane's painting it out as if it's a you know some kind of charity shop, but it's not at all. I walked in and it was like, oh my God, this is like an Aladdin's cave, shelf after shelf after shelf, stacked with the most incredible array. I mean, how long did it take you to amass all that? Oh, it's a lifetime of, of serious addiction yeah. to, to candlesticks and, and bowls, yeah. It's very sad, actually, in lots of ways. Uh, no, I, I think I think I could donate to your and James's bazaar that you're having in a few weeks' time. I think I could take a stand at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, keep it all. I think I think it. Okay, so my business is mostly events, parties, weddings. Mm. When I do, if I did flowers at your house now for for a dinner that you were giving, I would want to use your things because mm. that makes it feel much more yeah. Arthur. But you might say, well, actually, I've only got one of those, so I could bring two of something else that would fit in with it. But when I do something like the, the dinner we did on Tuesday 
at the V&A for Fabergé opening, it was two 120-foot yeah. tables. So 240 foot of table, wow. you can't do that from anything in the V&A. And you certainly have to have enough, you know, you have to have 100 candlesticks of the same type. And you have to have, well, we use nearly 650 different bud vases of different types. You need to have all that on hand so that you can actually be creative. Mm. It's, very, it's very interesting. So, yeah, it's taken 30 years to build that up embarrassingly. What's the prep time when you do those big events? Who's, how many people have you got helping you prep the flowers, getting it all there? A really good question. That, I mean, all those flowers came from a wonderful s- grower called Polly Nicholson, Bainton Flowers. So she yes. cut them all and foraged for them all. She brought them all to London. We then divided them up. We then have to arrange them into all those vases, pack all those little vases with bubble wrap around each one so that we reuse the bubble wrap all the time, in case you think I'm wasting plastic. Mm. We then have to get all those put onto trolleys to put onto a van to bring to the V&A. And then the next day it all comes back. They all have to be taken apart, emptied, dried, and put back on the shelves. So we had four people on Monday. We had six people on Tuesday, and we had three people on Wednesday for one dinner. And then all those vases have to be washed. Yeah, it's very labor intense, but flower design is, it's like cooking. You know, one person isn't going to, isn't going to make a meal for 240 people. That's the, that's the fact. That's a fact. It's just not. And the cooking is the quick bit, isn't it? It's the, it's the prep <laughs> and the cleaning Absolutely. up. Absolutely. the most yeah. important. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we put it all on the tech, you know, it took us probably ooh, two hours to set up the whole event. From mm. arrival to departure, wow. it took two hours, but the prep and the, the, the work behind the stage took, took two and a half days. It's very, <laughs> yeah. I was talking to another, another florist that I admire who's also gone floral, floral foam free, um, jam jar flowers, and they were, they were dismayed because they'd booked to do a wedding somewhere. And at quite short notice, they were told, I'm afraid this venue doesn't allow water. Yeah, in. yeah. Have you come across many venues that are like that? I mean, you're doing flowers in water, by the way, for some of the most prestigious places in the land, and they're allowing water in. Why are places fearful of of water? (laughs) I think because they've had very inexperienced flower people in the past who have spilt water. The the, the question, I suppose, is how much water can you possibly spill from flowers? And, I mean, if you've got a massive big urn filled with water and it falls over – there's quite a lot of water in that. So yes, it could do damage. Somewhere like the, the State Apartments of Kensington Palace, that could go through the floor and disturb a ceiling <laughs> beneath it. So I can, I can see their point. And if that is the case, what I always try to do is use things without water at all. So rather than use floral foam, I would arrange them in water. And then as we're delivering them, pour mm. the water out outside, dry the container, bring it in, and flowers out of water, which have been in water, as you well know, I mean, if you leave flowers hanging around, they easily last for the duration of a dinner. And all these places, that's yes. all we're talking about. We're talking about leaving something at half six and the dinner is over and everyone's gone home at half ten. It's four hours maximum. Mm. They're not all night boogie-woogie things. They're just not. And it rules, it rules out some flowers. Some flowers, you know, I wouldn't use sweet peas. Yeah. I but very happily yeah. use lots of other things which are they can it seems some people then say oh but that's terrible that's so wasteful it's better environmentally to mm. compost things which have not been stuck in floral foam the next day 
than it is, yes. I think, to deal with all the, the floral foam the next day. So it's, it's weighing things up. And, you know, flowers were traditionally made, I mean, Cleopatra apparently filled her banquets with rose petals that were sprinkled all over the floor. That's what flowers... Fabulous. I know, isn't it? I, th- I thought you might like that, Arthur. <laughs> wonder where she had those growing in Egypt. But I suppose Egypt might have been... Egypt must have been wetter back then, I suppose. I think so. And they, they did roses. Romans grew roses. I think for your next party, mm. I think you should appear in a cloud of rose petals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hot chocolate rose petals, maybe. That's the yeah, one. I don't know where we'd find that many. <laughs> maybe you should have dahlia petals. Yeah, maybe. They'd be, they'd be easier to get a lot of. I just think people have to get away from the idea. Flowers are transient. In the garden, they're transient. In, in seasons, you know, think of a blossom tree. How long does the blossom stay on the blossom tree? You start admiring it as it begins to open, then it opens, then it begins to fall. It's probably three weeks, four weeks maximum. If you bring a branch of that blossom in, how long do you think it should last? You know, we get obsessed with vase life. What is vase life? It sounds like, you know, what is it? It's awful. And especially for a party, if it's in your house, then that's a different thing. But if you're talking about these venues that don't allow water, I would be much happier to have flowers Mm. that by the next day are dead than than to be killing the planet with floral foam. Much happier. Really well said. Very good. I can't do this podcast because I'll get told if I don't ask you about it. Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) Your most... I think the thing that you're known for the most is doing Katie and Will's wedding, isn't it? I'd imagine. Um, yeah, but one trick pony. <laughs> no, you're very much more than that. But you did bring the thing that I remember. I, I saw it on the telly, like everybody else, of course, were the trees. And that, I thought, was the most incredible, wonderful thing to fill a venue with trees, which, of course, were alive, so no water, yeah. just in nice... How did you disguise the pots, by the way? Well, the pots were huge. I mean, they were the size of a small car. Yeah. So we had this <laughs> carpenter make bottomless pots, which went around the plastic, the big plastic pots in two pieces. And they were shaped exactly as the pillars of Westminster Abbey. And they were painted by this wonderful man who, who can paint anything to look like anything. He painted them to match the stone of the abbey. So the pots, basically the, the, the big trees were trolleyed in, put on builder's membrane, which was to stop any stains on the floor. And then these pots were slotted around them and screwed together. So they were sort of, yeah, they were, yeah, they were encased in boxes, which then went on to be used in Highgrove afterwards, the boxes, the the, the containers. So there was, there was no waste. And the trees went to be planted. The trees are all planted and Mm. all growing and thriving. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I've always, I've always liked using growing things. I think I identify much more with people like you and Sarah than I do with a lot of flower mm. people. To me, it has to start from the ground and it has to start from how things grow. So growing things are, are my joy. That's my, my absolute joy. What's your favorite thing that you're going to grow this year? Gosh. Well, during lockdown, I got more excited about vegetables than I've ever been to varying degrees of success. Mm. And the thing that I've enjoyed growing most this year, and this this isn't just because I'm speaking to you on Sarah Raven's <laughs> uh, airtime. Do you remember when I went <laughs> last year in September, I gave that talk at Perch Hill and Sarah had those little, yes, those little current tomatoes. Oh, the little bomb tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. And she said to me, take some. And, and I took the little tomatoes, did what she said, let them rot, wash the seed, 
planted them and every single seed took. And I think you might have seen one of them when you when you were at our house. And they have been my greatest pleasure this year because they taste extraordinary. They're very, very, very delicious. But yes. they, they look so beautiful. They really so that's that's yeah. been that's been my thrill of this year for sure. And I definitely want to grow those again. Shoe fly is another one I've enjoyed. Oh, we love the shoe fly. Uh, yes, really, we do. Really enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, we do yeah, love it. Yeah, beautiful and lovely. If you can use something like that in a photograph or in an arrangement, people don't know what it is, and I like that. Well, we'll end on that, Shane. <gasps> right. Gosh, forty minutes went very quickly. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. And for those of you that don't follow Shane, you can find him on Instagram to see all his gorgeousness that he does throughout the year both at home and at wonderful venues all across the country, using water and using flowers where they are best in water, not floor foam. Thanks for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. Next week, myself and Sarah are back together and we're sort of following on on a really good topic from this discussion with Shane. We're going to be talking about how to condition and arrange your flowers over the winter period to make sure they last for as long as possible and you can enjoy them for weeks inside while the garden is asleep and it's really cold. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.